This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. I know that we had all hoped this summer that uh, we could put COVID behind us once and for all. Uh, that was certainly my hope, and I said so very clearly. Based on our analysis of other jurisdictions around the world with similar rates of vaccination, we believed that we could prudently move away fr from addressing COVID as a pandemic and towards an endemic. It is now clear that we were wrong, and for that, I apologize. Jurisdictions all around the world have been learning how to deal with this ever-changing threat to human life. Often that has been a process of trial and error. I know that uh, we all want certainty and predictability during these difficult times. But one thing we've learned about COVID is that it simply is not predictable. We must address the challenge as it emerges, seeking as we have from the beginning to protect both lives and livelihoods. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney yesterday. I mean, it was just a few months ago that he had declared Alberta open for summer. Restrictions were over. He said they didn't anticipate any problems with a potential fourth wave. But it's so bad now that you heard that pretty much whiplash of an about face yesterday. They have implemented a new range of public health measures, even including a vaccine card program, something he had absolutely opposed in the past. So for more on everything that has happened in Alberta in the last 24 hours, we are joined now by Tom Vernon, Global News Edmonton Provincial Affairs reporter. Tom, thank you for being here. Hey, thanks for having me on. So what brought Jason Kenney to that point? Because that was a real about face for him yesterday. Yeah, I mean, he's been saying for, for weeks that Alberta would not come up with a vaccine passport system. Interestingly, they're not calling it that. They're calling a restrictions exemption program. So they will not even use the term vaccine passport system. But it's really the state of our hospitals here in the province right now. 877 people are in the hospital with COVID-19 or 218 of them in ICU. The Premier said yesterday, if, if the, the rate doesn't turn, we could be out of ICU capacity in the next 10 days, out of beds, out of people that can staff those beds. What they're even talking about calling other provinces to see if they can take ICU patients for us here in Alberta. So, I mean, doctors have been calling for weeks for restrictions to be put in place, a vaccine passport system to be put in place because we're on this path. It took until yesterday for the Premier and his cabinet and his caucus to move in this direction politically, wasn't easy for him. I can imagine. Can you tell us a bit about that process, about what was it like? He must have had to convince a lot of members of his caucus about this. And I'm still not convinced that all of his members of caucus are convinced. Look, the Premier has been dealing with divisions in his caucus over COVID-19 for well over a year now. There is a big segment that does not like the restrictions, does, does not believe that they're the best way to, to handle this. Uh, there was outright revolt in the springtime of, over this. Two members were thrown out of caucus for speaking out against them. Um, the meetings that it took to get to this point, there were two cabinet meetings, special cabinet committee meetings two days ago, followed by a caucus meeting, another cabinet committee meeting yesterday. We're told even within that committee, there was divide. So the premier is in a lot of political trouble, a lot of political heat within his own party for backtracking, for saying we're open for good. 
and now putting restrictions in place for Albertans and businesses. Is there any suggestion that he might lose more members of caucus as a result of this? So we'll be watching very closely what happens in caucus today. Uh, Sources say that there was some very unhappy people in that caucus meeting the other day. Um, I've been told constituency associations are very unhappy. Those are the the grassroots members of the party that are very unhappy. Um, There is uh, an annual general meeting for the United Conservative Party in November. There has been a grassroots push for a leadership review of the Premier. He's been trying to put it off for a year. He said, look, we can have one next fall but that will put us six, seven months away from an election. So there will be a push for a leadership review in November for the Premier from certain members of the grassroots. They haven't had enough yet to get to the point of calling that. So we'll see if they get to that point. But with this new vaccine passport system, with restrictions on gatherings and restrictions in worship services and that, I think there will be a, a growing group from the grassroots to push for that. So he has, um, he, he does have a divided party to either try and bring back together to save his leadership or his leadership could be in trouble. So what is changing then here, Tom? So what kind Mm -hmm. of restrictions are being put in place for Albertans? So it's interesting. Uh, So the way it goes for bars and restaurants, uh, they now have to close the in-dining service. Uh, There's still a liquor curfew here uh, for bars, so they can serve until 10. Uh, Sorry, last call until 10, consumption done at 11. We've got gathering restrictions for people in their homes. We've got uh, worship service gathering restrictions. There's the work from ho- the work from home order has been put back into place. So you have to work from home unless a business determines that you are operationally necessary to work on site. Uh, the retail services will have one third fire code capacity. So the restrictions on the number of people that can go into retail stores as well. Now for restaurants, they can operate with patios. So if they still have a patio going, uh, you can have dining outside. You still need masking as you move about the patio. But if you want to avoid all of these restrictions you can put this vaccine restrictions exemption program in place, the vaccine passport program in place, and then you can operate without restrictions in the hospitality sector. So that's the most interesting part here is restaurants, uh, bars, other indoor uh, entertainment facilities. You can operate with restrictions. You can close down and not have in in, uh, person dining, or you can put this program in place. So they did not make the program mandatory. They still put it on businesses to decide whether or not they're going to go through with this. So that that's the interesting part in this. Or he's still not making it mandatory, but you have to close if you don't uh, if you don't put it in place. Yeah. What has been the reaction then from the business community on this? Had they been asking for restrictions? So there's there's actually strong support for this kind of vaccine passport system in the province. Both the Edmonton and Calgary chambers of commerce have, have called for one. The hospitality sector has said, look, we need a way that we can safely stay open. We don't want to be closed down. So uh, there was. Uh, majority support in the business community for this type of system. Uh, I haven't got full reaction from uh, businesses yet. This was just announced last night, but we did hear from the Hospitality Association president saying, this is just the uncertainty that's happening here in Alberta. We, you know, we're going down one path and then at the snap of a finger, the premier changes his mind and goes this way. So what there is a lot of frustration about is the lack of certainty, the lack of clarity in the province when it comes to these kind of restrictions, what's coming, what's not coming. Um, But there will be a lot of businesses happy that, look, there's a vaccine passport system in place that will allow me to operate. I'm not sure how happy they're going to be that it is not mandatory and not universal. Um, Because that just, it it, it once again puts the onus on the business to decide. I mean, retail businesses um, are going to be working at one-third capacity uh, regardless of a vaccine passport system. Essential uh, essential businesses, grocery stores, stuff like that, they'll they'll not be able to operate on a vaccine passport system. They'll have to remain open at that at those capacity restrictions. So it's it's not universal, and it is still up to businesses to decide whether or not they put the program in place. 
And there's going to be businesses out there that are just not happy with that. What happened with the vaccination rate, Tom? Like, I know that earlier in the yeah. summer that the Premier had said that, oh, you know, we know Albertans are going to do this. And once, once enough people have this done, then we'll be okay. And it's, yeah, and, and they're doing their best to, to drive those rates up. But it was, look, the, the Premier came out, it was two weeks ago now, and offered that $100 incentive to get people to go get their shots. And there's, look, there's, there's a group of people out there, and I'm sure they're in every province, that just aren't going to get the shot. You can't convince them otherwise. Sounds like there's a real issue here trying to get younger, younger people to get the vaccine, um, that, that 20 to 29-year-old range. Um, so many have said, look, the vaccine passport system is what's going to convince them to get the, the vaccine, the, the ones that want to go out and have a good time with friends and that. So it's, we've definitely stalled here. The province says they've done everything they can to try and convince people to get it through advertising campaigns and through access. But um, yeah, we've stalled at about 79% double vaccinated on that, the, the 12 plus. Um, but yeah, the, the first doses have really slowed. And that's just, I mean, part of it is just just the, the age of the people not getting it. Part of it is yeah. just the, the political divide right now. Yeah, were you surprised? Then? It seems like a lot of people were very surprised by what happened yesterday. Yes and no. I mean, the, there were leaks in that coming out about what way they were going to go. And honestly, the, the, the way the hospitalizations and the case numbers were going, the government had to do something. So I wasn't surprised that they went with this vaccine passport system. I am surprised with how they're rolling it out. Um, just the yeah. still making it the option for business. Fascinating stuff. Tom, thank you for explaining it to us this morning. Oh, happy to do it. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, we've been talking this morning about BC's vaccine card system. Been in place for four days or so now. Wondering what your experience has been with that. Our Raji Sohal joins us for more on that. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. I also have not been approached by anyone in a business yet uh, asking to Mm. see any proof of vaccine. Okay, well, uh, let me tell you, I've got a lot of emails on this this morning, uh, and we've got some buzz lines. We'll get to those in a moment, but listen to this one for a second here, Raji. Uh, Mike says, I've used my certificate twice now. Absolutely no problem, he said. We were out with friends last night, and we all commented how much better we felt knowing everybody in the restaurant was vaccinated. It truly brought a sense of calming and relief to everybody in our party. He said it was a very enjoyable evening. He said one very important thing was that we made sure we treated the staff with a lot of gratitude. He said, I am now very aware that these folks may have to deal with idiots and I want them to know they have a lot of folks in their corner. Mike, I thought that was great. Isn't that nice? That is really nice. And I have thought about that aspect that you can just dine more comfortably or, you know, work out more comfortably or what whatever, be in the same space as other people, not have to worry as much. So that's fantastic. It is. We've got some calls to our buzz line too. Have a listen. Good morning, Simi. My coworker and myself went for lunch on Tuesday to a, rest, a chain restaurant in Richmond. And when we walked in the door, we had our ID and our vaccine cards ready. And he didn't even look at him. I said, are you going to check these? And he said, nope, I trust you. Didn't even take a glance. Hey, Simi, read the vaccination card. I've got the first dose. I've got the paper card. I went for sushi yesterday. Uh, they looked at the card. They get you to scan your palm of your hand for your temperature, and then away you went. So, you know, it's just like if you were going to a club and you got to get ID'd. It's just the way it is. I used a vaccine card yesterday to get to the gym. Went and took a really fun gym class with a bunch of ladies. Um, 
the vaccine card pass the vaccine passport was really easy to use. Took seconds. There were no lineups to get in or anything like that. We all just flew through. QR code is super easy. Uh, it's just the best thing ever. It's so good to be back. That is so nice to hear, isn't it? Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. All very good, uh, positive anecdotes there. You know, in one of my classes, I go to a bar class uh, once a week. So that's like ballet kind of uh, for people who aren't dancers. And um, the instructor told me that she feels really funny about asking people for it repeatedly. So she was at the time, and this is before it was instituted, uh, she said that she was probably going to just ask people once and then not again because she didn't want to make people feel awkward. And I thought, oh, no, we'll, we'll feel more comfortable knowing that those around us are also vaccinated. So. We'll see if that if she changes yeah, her mind. I hope so, because I think what happened is that perhaps the small number of people who didn't like this idea were more vocal and had mm. drowned out perhaps the majority of people who were like, no, I like this idea. I want to know that where I go, yeah. everybody is vaccinated. Simi, I think in that arena, we as media can sometimes be part of the problem, giving these people too much of a voice, giving the naysayers too much attention, too much oxygen, when, like you say, by and large, most people are vaccinated and endorse this system of trying to keep uh, as many people out of ICUs and as safe as possible, right? That is so true. So yeah, we want to hear from you this morning if you've had an experience using the vaccine card yet somewhere you go. I had an email from somebody, I'll read this a little bit later, Raji, too, about are they checking or is every place checking? Because I've also heard some stories that maybe places are not checking as carefully as they should be. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder if that's, again, uh, just out of nervousness that most people won't be compliant when it sounds like most people are. Yeah, I hope so, too. All right, thanks. We'll check back in with you later. Thanks, Simi. That is our Raji Sohal. Yeah, tell us what it's been like for you using that vaccine card. It sounds like it's pretty straightforward and simple, but what has your experience been? You can call our buzz line 604-331-2899 or drop me an email, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we're getting ready to cast our votes. If you haven't already, of course, Election Day coming up on Monday. Canadians, a lot of them are still thinking about who they are going to vote for. And in particular, who is the person that you perceive will be the best Prime Minister. Well, for more on that, we're joined now by Sean Simpson, Vice President of Ipsos Public Affairs. Good morning, Sean. Good morning. Now, this can sometimes be different than what people say about which party they're going to vote for, right? This is a different kind of question. Yeah, that's right. It's it's sort of less inhibiting, right? Because you don't get all of the baggage that the party (laughs) brings with it. So uh, what we find uh, for some leaders, they run very closely to their party and other leaders either run ahead or behind their party. Uh, So, for example, Jagmeet Singh. Uh, runs ahead of his tw- his party. 25% of Canadians believe he'd be the best prime minister, but only 21% uh, would vote. And actually, for Singh, that is down. It was 29% uh, just uh, just two weeks ago. So it's snapping back together. Uh, the best PM vote and the actual party vote are getting closer together. But still narrowly, uh, 32% uh, plurality say that it's, it's actually Justin Trudeau, the current prime minister, who would be the best choice. Aaron O'Toole very close behind him at 29%, which is essentially a statistical tie. The prime minister had a big lead coming into this election, and he's squandered it. He essentially doesn't have a lead anymore. So does anybody really stand out in this? Well, I mean, Jagmeet Singh 
takes most of the leadership attributes that we tested. Uh, people, people like him. Whether or not they want him to be the prime minister is a different story, but they like him. They say that he's the person who will best protect the interests of cultural, religious, and other minorities in Canada. They say that he's the person who would fight for the middle class. He's, he's the person who is most sincere. He's the person that means what they say, and he's the person that will make things more affordable. And that's actually the number two issue of the campaign this year is affordability. Uh, Justin Trudeau, on the other hand, is the person who Canadians think will say anything to get elected, uh, who most has a hidden agenda, for example. But, you know, there's some good things as well. They believe that he'll, he, he'll be the best person to represent Canada on the world stage. And importantly, given it's a number one issue, is the best to manage COVID-19. What about trust scores? Ah, yes. So trust scores, uh, in fact, uh, one in three Canadians say that they don't trust any of them uh, the most, uh, which is uh, sort of a sad, uh, a sad state of affairs here. Uh, the edge, a very slight edge, goes to Jagmeet Singh at 22 percent, uh, Justin Trudeau at 20 percent, and Aaron O'Toole a little bit further behind at 16 percent. But we have to remember that he's he's a new leader, right? He's had less time to build trust among Canadians. Jagmeet Singh, of course, been around since 2019 election. Justin Trudeau's been running since 2015, so he's had time to earn and then subsequently, uh, subsequently, I guess, lose trust. Um, uh, Annemie Paul down at 4%, uh, uh, Monsieur Blanchette at, at 5% uh, within uh, nationally, which is about 20% in Quebec. Okay, so it just kind of, it does kind of reflect what's going on with the polls right now too, right? Yeah, definitely. There's there's some some mirroring happening here. Uh, last week we saw the NDP decline in the polls. Now we see Jagmeet Singh's uh, you know favorability ratings uh, fall a little bit too. Um, Aaron O'Toole he's had a slight decline since uh, the last week, both in terms of his his. Um, leadership uh, credentials and also the, the best prime minister you know normally in canada we don't have a, an issue-based election uh you know free trade was the last yeah. one that i can think of that was really based on issue so in the absence of a defining issue of, the, of a campaign uh people vote based on the leaders and so you know the, the the person who makes the best prime minister in the minds of canadians uh is an important question to ask because that is often how people are voting. Very few people vote based on their local candidates as well. So we know that Aaron O'Toole is, has, has introduced himself to Canadians this time around and, and actually has been seen pretty good, in pretty good light. Uh, you know, there's some questions about the, you know, the gun control issue, especially in, in Quebec. But by and large, Canadians right. um, have, not been, have, have not been offended by him in the way that they were by, by Andrew Shear. So interesting. Sean, thank you. It's been my pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. We've been talking this morning about BC's vaccine card system. Whether it's caused you any hiccups or delays or anything like that in the four days or so that it's been up and running. So far, every email that I've gotten from somebody about the subject says, yeah, I've used it and it's perfectly fine. It was, you know, 10 seconds, 15 seconds, whatever the case may be. So you tell me what your experience has been. Send me at cknw.com or call our buzz line 604-331-2899. Now, there's only certain locations where you have to use it right? Indoor dining, perhaps. Uh, indoor fitness is another one where you have to show it like you would show your gym membership card when you go in. But there are those in the fitness industry who have concerns. They believe it 
could potentially lead to people, you know, not bothering to go to the gym or perhaps canceling their membership. Sarah Hodson joins us now, president of the Fitness Industry Council of Canada. Sarah, thank you for joining us. Good morning, Simi. Do you think that might actually happen, that people would just not go to the gym because of this? You know, I think that, you know, the fitness industry has had a very, very tough time throughout the pandemic. And, you know, we're an industry where we were closed for many months at the beginning. And then we've had levels of fitness that have been closed since November of 2020. And so we have created a large interruption for our members. And so, you know, as an industry that has been decimated from the pandemic, I mean, we are businesses that are trying to operate and survive. Many of us small, independently owned, small yoga studios, small spin studios um, that are doing our best to kind of stay afloat. Um, you know, any type of interruption for our members, it does create resistance and, and it does create for some people to cancel their memberships. However, uh, the fitness industry has had a very close relationship with the provincial government. We have sat at the industry engagement table throughout the pandemic, and we were able to work with the provincial government to create a one-and-done vaccine passport system. And just like you mentioned, I mean, our members, they're recurring. We already have a check-in system. We already have computer systems that manage all of our facilities. And so we were able to really work with the provincial government to say what's reasonable here so that we can achieve what the goal is, but we can still really lower the threshold for our members to participate. And so our members just have to come in, sign a written consent that we can then log their vaccine status. We do not hold their vaccine card or any personal information or any personal health information in regards to their vaccination. Um, But we just check off their vaccine status. We see some government photo ID and that's it. And we never really have to do it again. It's log in our system. And then that member can continue without interruption moving forward. Okay, so they just have to just like you would show your gym card, your membership card, you show it once. And then you're, you're recorded in the system as having shown it. And then that's good. Exactly. And then it's attached to your membership card. And so every time you come in, just as you used to, you get the green light and you move forward. Now, is that in BC, Sarah? Or is that in other provinces as well? That is in British Columbia, um, and that's what Ontario is looking at doing. Um, Quebec actually started that prior to to BC. We were able to take some great learnings um, out of that province. Um, Again, the Fitness Industry Council of Canada is the industry for fitness. We oversee 6,000 fitness facilities across Canada. So we've been able to take the learnings and work here locally with our provincial government and, I believe, and encourage that the Alberta provincial government will also, um, you know, take these learnings and, again, minimize the interruption for the consumer, which therefore makes it easier for us to operate a fitness business. Yeah, what is the consumer reaction to that? Because, like, if for me, I would think I would want to know if I'm getting sweaty two feet away from somebody in the gym that they're vaccinated. Yeah, you know, it's a really good point. And I think that throughout this pandemic, we've had real and perceived concerns. And, you know, one of the perceived concerns that people have had is that, you know, fitness must be less safe because we are breathing hard and sweating. But if we actually look at the data, the real concern, the real data shows us that globally, fitness has actually had a 0.06% transmission rate. That's a very, very, very low risk when we are participating in fitness. And fitness has had some of the highest cleaning policies 
some of the, we have had distance machines. We have had distancing in our facilities. We have had masks for the majority of the year. In fact, the Fitness Industry Council of Canada here in BC, we put masks in, into our facilities in November in order to protect our members and our staff in advance of having to based on the provincial guidelines. Right. And so I think that, yes, we have these perceived ideas, but, you know, really now if within our facilities, all of our members are vaccinated is now not the time that fitness is the safest it has ever been during this pandemic. So for those people who haven't participated yet out of maybe those fears and concerns, I invite those people back because now is the time to start. Right. Sarah, is it not so much perhaps then the actual workout that is the concern? It's the socializing that goes on at the gym that is probably the concern. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, you know, we we have always had since the beginning of this pandemic, since we were able to reopen in May of 2020, we've had physical distancing in. And our members are good about this because everyone wants the doors to be open. I mean, never before have we realized that fitness is not just about, you know, ripped muscles and running a marathon as fast as you can. This is about our physical, mental and social health. And we are connected humans and our mental health. I mean, we know that just even in as small as 10 minutes of exercise, we can improve our mood. And I mean, all of us could do with a little bit of a mood yes. boost these days, right? <laughs> right. So then, Sarah, to be clear, then if you go to a gym, the gym should be able to ask you once and then that's it. Yes, with written consent, they can hold your vaccine status, and that's it. It's a one-and-done system. Interesting. All right, Sarah, thank you for your time. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So we're talking this morning about the whole vaccine card, where BC's had it now for four days. They're doing a big about face in Alberta and, and, and implementing something like this, although they won't really call it a vaccine card or a vaccine passport. But I'm curious about your experience with it. Have you had to use it? Have you had to take that out and show it to somebody to go into a restaurant or a fitness facility or somewhere? Let me know. Was it easy peasy? No problem? Maybe 10, 15 seconds? Or did it cause delays? Or did maybe they not ask you to show it? That's another thing I'm curious about. Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. Now, there was also a recent announcement about some booster shots for COVID-19, right? A third dose of the vaccine. BC is going to do that for people who are severely immunocompromised. But there are people who are saying, well, we should widen that, maybe give it to some seniors living in long-term care as well. For more on that, we're joined by Isabel McKenzie, BC's Seniors Advocate. Good morning, Isabel. Good morning. Were you surprised to hear that the seniors in long-term care were not included in this initial group? Uh, A little surprised. Uh, My understanding is that we are going to be providing booster shots to residents of long-term care, and I would assume actually to uh, older seniors, certainly those 80-plus living in the community. The evidence is becoming pretty clear. Uh, Certainly we know from countries like Israel and the UK that did their vaccinations uh, a little ahead of us, and we know from uh, studies in Canada and what we're seeing in in real time here in BC 
that there is a waning protection uh, to this uh, vaccine for the older population particularly. So many of these cases that we're seeing come up in long-term care now, and tragically, even some of the deaths we're seeing in long-term care are fully vaccinated uh, seniors. Uh, it's the, the vaccine, uh, it is highly, highly effective. Uh, but we are learning uh, that over time, that protection wanes and most pronounced in people who have less robust immune systems, so immunocompromised people and uh, frail elderly people and people with other comorbidities, particularly as you would, you would find the population living in a long-term care home. So you feel they would definitely benefit from getting that third dose? Oh, yes. I think the, uh, the evidence is pretty clear on that. Um, I think uh, we've, we've got several studies uh, within Canada, even uh, here in BC, and the data that are coming in from other jurisdictions that were ahead of us in providing the vaccine. Now, the question is always when to provide that booster shot. So it may be that we all need booster shots, but we may, it, the, the waning of the protection takes longer for people like you and me with more robust immune systems. We think, uh, and I say we think because, as we know, things are changing and evolving, that when we're talking about the frail elderly and the immunocompromised, that about five months after the second shot is uh, when you start looking at a booster shot. If If you give it too early, it won't be effective. So it's not just, I need a booster, it's when will that booster shot be most effective? Remember, a number of our people in long-term care were receiving their second dose in February uh, and early March. We did make the change, the policy change, to um, uh, space the dosage out from 28 days to four months, and and then it got dialed back a bit to three months. So some people uh, received their second shot in uh, April or May, and so their protection will not have waned as much as the people who received it back in January, February. Okay, so are you hopeful, though, that this might change? Have there been discussions with the provincial government on this? Um, I am very hopeful that we will be hearing very shortly that there's um, uh, the, uh, a schedule of when the booster shots will be offered to people in long-term care and Uh, those in the community who are vulnerable. Remember, there's a number of people who live in the community who have the same degree of frailty as people living in long-term care, so they need um, the booster shot as well. And I think it will be, you know, we've we've got an excellent system of uh, um, cataloging when you've had your vaccine. So the system knows, you know, it's so many months since your second shot, here's how old you are. Uh, okay, here's the date of your booster shot and you'll get the invitation or the phone call depending on, on how you were notified of, pre, of your second shot. Right. Okay. Is this something that is being done elsewhere, Isabel? Well, certainly around the world, uh, the booster shots in Israel, the booster shots in the UK, remember that they gave their vaccines earlier than we did. I know that uh, some other provinces in Canada have formally announced booster shots to people in long-term care. I believe Ontario uh, and I believe Alberta, but I may be wrong on that. Whether they've begun to administer those booster shots, um, I'm not quite clear on the date of the booster shot uh, uh, dose, 
but they've certainly announced and committed to providing that. Okay, so hopeful that that could change. I guess, we, do we need to see results? Do you think once we get the severely immunocompromised out of the way, then we can open it up a little bit? Uh, yes, although I would argue we have seen the results. Um, we've seen um, the results from other countries, and certainly the, the, the studies, so the, the studies are looking at the antibody response. Um, those are providing uh, fairly compelling results right now around the effectiveness of the booster shot in uh, the frail elderly, similar to the immune compromised. It's the same principle of immune compromised and frail elderly, which is they can't mount a robust antibody response to the vaccine. And so they need that extra boost. Right. We'll see what happens. Thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Okay. Thank you, Simi. Isabel McKenzie is BC's seniors advocate. She is hoping, as many other people are, that that group receiving the third booster shot here in BC will be expanded to include seniors living in long-term care. Right now, it's only people who are severely immunocompromised who are scheduled to get it. But we'll see, especially when you see that we're still having some outbreaks, we are still having cases, we are still having deaths, particularly in long-term care. Will that policy change? This is Mornings with Simi. You know, everyone can use a little help these days, and I'm sure you've been still giving to different charities and organizations, still buying those tickets, especially for those hospital lotteries. And you may wonder, well, where does the money go? What's going on with those hospital foundations right now? Well, joining us is Laura Walsh. Laura is the Senior Vice President of Philanthropy at VGH and UBC Hospital Foundation. Good morning, Laura. Good morning, Timmy. How are things at the VGH Foundation these days? You know what? They're good. They're busy, and thanks to our many wonderful and generous donors, uh, we are able to keep focused on raising funds and you know making sure that our vision is in front of us for what we are trying to do to help transform healthcare here in BC. Yeah, how challenging has that been during the pandemic? Because like it feels like everybody's wallet got squeezed, right? Yeah, certainly I think, you know, overall it's a challenging time for everyone. However, at VGH and UBC Hospital Foundation, we really do have a tremendous family of loyal supporters who have been touched uh, by by the, the work that we do here at our hospitals and have stayed faithful donors. We're very grateful for, for our longtime donors and for new donors who have joined us. So uh, we're doing all right. Thank you. Yeah. Do you get do you get people who are regular donors? Do they give every year? Is it just a habit that they get into? Oh, we certainly do. Yeah. Our foundation. We are we're in our forty first year. So we we celebrated our fortieth anniversary last year, and we do have donors who have been giving for decades. We also during COVID have seen you know many new jo- donors who have really stopped to realize the importance of healthcare and what all, all our hospital workers are doing. So it's a, you know it's a combination, uh, but we certainly do have many loyal donors who have stayed with us through the years and supported many different programs. Yeah, how challenging is it to attract more people, Laura, right now? Yeah, I think. There's certainly an awareness of healthcare and with the pandemic. So I would say as a healthcare and a hospital foundation charity, we're probably in a better position than others for people to really realize health is important. Uh, the future is important. So, you know, we certainly do our best and our, you know, our, 
Our best ambassadors are often our current supporters because they know firsthand where their donation goes, and they're often the ones who will share with their friends and their business colleagues to say, hey, if you want to make a donation, I'm involved with ZGH and UBC Hospital Foundation, and you should check out what they're doing. So that's always helpful. Right. So you must have a list, right? This is what I always wonder about um, foundations in particular when it comes to raising money is you must have a wish list of things that you want to accomplish at UBC and VGH Hospital. Yeah, so our we're the philanthropic partner to Vancouver Coastal Health. Um, so we're the charitable foundation raising those vital funds for health care and research. So there are many needs. Um, but this, what some people often don't realize that, of course, our main primary uh, support goes to Vancouver's most, uh, BC's most specialized largest hospital, VGH, or Vancouver General Hospital. Also, we support UBC Hospital, GF Strong Rehab Center, the Vancouver Coastal Health Research Institute, which is the the largest uh, research institute in Western Canada, both in terms of uh, funding and and amount of research, and we support Vancouver Community Health Services. So just by hearing sort of that myriad of areas we support, in each of those there's a range of things from, you know, we certainly supported many of the COVID needs, cardiology, cancer, surgery, you know, substance abuse. So the there's a long list uh, of needs, but thankfully we have a, a generous community who care about many of these issues. So how can people help, though? How can we step in now and do more? For sure. Uh, so first and foremost, we're a foundation where we love to have conversations with people and understand where they'd like to have impact. Uh, certainly just to learn a little bit about us. If people don't know at all, we I invite people to come and visit our website, VGH foundation.ca where you can learn about us and there's many different ways and of course uh, legacy giving is another really important area and I have found during the pandemic it has been a time when people have really thought about sort of the future you know after my lifetime what matters to me Uh, so we certainly have had more conversations and more people coming to talk to us about legacy giving or naming us in their will Oh, that's so nice. So that's like a way of having long-term impact, even long after we are gone. Exactly. You know, and um, people often don't sort of realize that that's a way that they can really make a difference. You know, some people think perhaps that only, you know, very wealthy people leave money to charities in their wills. But in reality, more be- most bequests are actually made by sort of ordinary, hardworking people who just want to make a positive difference. Well, thank you so much for telling us about it today. Laura, where can people go for more information? Yeah, certainly. So always welcome to visit our our website where there's some really powerful stories and information, vghfoundation.ca. Or uh, you can certainly call 604-875-4917. And one of my colleagues, Charlene, is happy there to have a conversation if anyone has questions around legacy giving or any other way to get involved. Hmm, that's so interesting. Okay, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Sammy. Have a wonderful day, and thank you to all your listeners who are support VGH and UBC Hospital Foundation. We appreciate it. Well, anything we can do to help. That is Laura Walsh, Senior Vice President of Philanthropy at VGH and UBC Hospital Foundation, talking about the idea of legacy giving. Hadn't really thought about that before, but that is a neat idea. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, are things starting to ramp up again? Unfortunately, in the gang war we have here in Metro Vancouver, boy, this latest shooting at the Fairmont Pacific Rim sure makes it seem that way. Let's find out exactly what happened. Joining us now is Kim Bolin, crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Kim. Good morning. Does this seem like things are getting more intense once again? Well, certainly uh, the murder of Alan Mounds. Uh, he was a high-profile person who was uh, sort of deeply involved in the gang lifestyle. His brother was shot to death in Mexico in December of 2018. Uh, he's been known to police since he was a teenager, essentially, um, involved in the South Slope conflict back in 2008. So this is someone who is high-profile. He switched sides several times. Uh, when you look at his criminal associations, hard to say that this is directly linked to what we have seen going on earlier this year across the Lower Mainland. However, uh, given that he has ties to the United Nations gang, one of the gangs involved in that conflict, it's certainly reasonable to assume it may well be connected. Right. So what do we know at this point about what happened and what was found there at the Fairmont Pacific Rim? Well, we haven't heard that much from investigators. They haven't consulted ID. I did it with a number of sources, uh, so it's in my story today. Uh, police were called uh, to the parkade, the third floor level of the parkade of the Pacific Rim uh, Hotel, gorgeous hotel down there on the waterfront. Uh, a man was found unresponsive inside a car. Uh, this was Mr. Mellon. He This is about 3.30 yesterday afternoon. Uh, we were told that it was a witness who sort of called it in. Emergency responders arrived. They tried to revive him. They could not do it. Uh, it was determined right away that it was death by a targeted shooting. So, uh, you know, obviously police were in the area until the wee hours of the morning. I'm sure they're going to be on the scene again today. Uh, they made a fairly quick identity. I had been told, again, by some of my sources that he was with a friend and actually in a friend's car uh, when he was hit. Now, the third floor of that parkade is one that is used by the hotel and visitors. It's not linked to residences. A lot of people wondered if he was renting one of the residences in that building. Mm-hmm. We don't know that yet, but the floor that he was parking on suggests that he wasn't connected to the residences. Uh, but we do know from talking to uh, some of the people who do live in that building that police were going floor to floor and looking for a suspect last night. So, uh, you know, did they think someone managed to hide within that building after this shooting? Uh, or, you know, I assume it's just a normal investigative thing to go through the building, right. as well as looking at, they were checking all the surveillance videos. So, it's a very high-profile murder. Uh, unfortunately, there's likely going to be repercussions for this one uh, in gangland, if you will. Uh, so we hope it's not the start of another wave of this violence, but maybe it's going to be. Oh, man, that is not kind of what we want to hear, is it? But this this usually does follow. It's not, we don't usually see these as isolated incidents, do we? No, we don't. And, um, you know, I did write a story uh maybe two or three weeks ago about how a number of people that had been targeted in the conflict earlier in the year, uh, particularly people from the Brothers Keepers gang, which would be in conflict with the United Mm -hmm. Nations gang, had actually left town. And they were found in other provinces. They'd gone somewhere else because, you know, there was a lot of heat on them. And we know back uh, at the um, end of May, uh, the police issued these warning posters with a bunch of people's photos on them. And that certainly made some of those people leave town, right? So things have been quieter through the summer. 
We still had some violence, obviously. We hear about shootings. There have been a couple of murders uh, linked to the conflict, but it's much quieter than it was in sort of April, May, and definitely also in January. January was very violent, unfortunately. That is so true. Listen, Kim, thank you for that this morning. Thanks for having me on. This is Mornings with Simi. Almost 35 million. That's how many hours of team and sports play that kids missed out on last year due to COVID. You know, a lot of kids didn't participate in sports because of the lockdowns. And really, there was a lack of people to run teams. And there were so many safety concerns. Well, Jumpstart is asking Canadians to donate to save kids' sports. For more on that, our Raji Silhal joins us now. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, I mean, I'm in this boat too, right? I have, I'm a parent with uh, little ones. And obviously, parents have one major concern when it comes to safety and health, right? They want to keep their kids safe. They want to keep them healthy. So understandably, a lot of parents took their kids out of organized sports. And I was one of those. Um, I did the same. Um, swimming lessons were canceled. So that was beyond my control. But we saw the effects of that in our family this uh, past summer. My kids who used to be like fish uh, were not so comfortable in the water anymore. They just hadn't had that regular exposure. But then uh, when it came to softball, softball was still on and I didn't put my kid in it, even though she desperately wanted to, uh, because I wasn't sure of the risks. And apparently 74% of parents are saying that their kids are are feeling isolated and lonely without sports. Here's Marco Di Buono from Jumpstart. Uh, And kids have shared this in their own voice and their parents have validated this, that the one most predominant issue that has resulted from the lack of kids sports is an exponential increase in mental health concerns uh, amongst the parents and the kids themselves. Uh, That lack of social interaction uh, propagated in part from lack of school, but also through lack of physical activity and organized sport really created some significant trauma for kids. And the vicious cycle of not having that avenue to be active also meant that those kids didn't have a coach or youth activity leader that they could confide in to share some of that trauma that they may have experienced at home or in other cases uh, during the pandemic. So it really created some significant mental health pressures for kids. Yeah, Simi, I um, experienced that firsthand, but I've also heard so many stories from other parents about that. I also have a nephew who plays in so many sports. Sports are his life. And I saw him get really, really down without uh, the ability to join his team members the way that he always had before. And we know that some sports offerings were shut down and others were, were just limited, but the, the effects were, were uh, wide reaching for kids course it goes without saying that the lack of physical activity created all kinds of other concerns lack of poor sleep habits different types of eating habits uh reduced fitness levels but the one big concern across the board was mental health so given that that's the case then what do we know about what sport does give kids you know increasing resiliency amongst kids because they have that opportunity to uh, improve their social and emotional learning skills with the help of a, a trusted coach and youth activity leader. But there are also very clear benefits around academic performance and participation. We know that kids who tend to be more active, particularly in organized sports settings or in structured settings, also do better in school and, and are more engaged in school. And then the final piece is really all those life skills that they learn through participation in team sports. The 
you know, the ability to be resilient in a loss and the ability to cooperate with teammates and to take direction and, and to be at, at a venue on time, those translate into life skills that set them up for stronger workforce participation opportunities as they migrate from childhood into adult, adulthood. Oh, Raji, that is so interesting because I definitely saw that with my kids. One in particular, uh, she was deeply into team sports. She played basketball, soccer, field hockey her entire wow. life. And she really felt it when she kind of got into adulthood. She's 24 now and started working full time and realizing oh, she had to make more of an effort now to play. But the camaraderie and the, yes. and the skills that you learn in team building when you are a kid playing a team sport or a sport of some kind is so valuable later on in life. Yeah, uh, Marco Di Buono talked there about the resilience, and I remember learning that from sport and and uh, whether it was track and field, an individual sport where, you know, I, I really wanted to win and I lost, and having to deal with that disappointment. I mean, that is a critical life skill. You have to deal with disappointment your entire exactly. life. So I really took that from sport, but also in high school, I remember that playing sports, Simi ate up all my free time. So yes. I was that much more. <laughs> as, as a parent, in, I'm like, yes, yeah. it takes up their time <laughs> in high school. A hundred percent. No time to get into trouble. But I was also more motivated than ever to get good grades, to make just the most of it because I didn't have this extra time. And, you know, I totally understand that some parents had a mindset of let's just wait it out. Let's wait this pandemic out. Um, you know, I think because in part we think maybe it's not a big deal for adults to miss out on something for a year and a half, but for kids, that's a devastating blow. So what Jumpstart's doing is they have this program that you can donate to that helps kids uh, get back into playing sports. So that could mean something like paying for their activity fees. Um, there's just a whole bunch of different ways that you can uh, donate and help kids get back into sport. The cool thing is that on their website, it's all laid out for you there on Jumpstart. It says that 100% of your donation goes directly to helping kids play. And I feel really good about that. And Ryan, they do it across a wide variety of sports, don't they? Yeah, hockey, martial arts, uh, dance, basketball, swimming, soccer. Um, and I don't make a lot of money, as you know, but I every month try to give a little tiny amount um, away. And in my giving this month, um, this is appealing to me because I also have kids and I want for all children to be able to get back into sport. One thing that uh, Jumpstart talked to me about also was just the fact that these kids, for some of them, being on a sports team is what matters to them more than school or their it's family. It's an identity. Exactly. Yeah. And without it, they're at a loss. You know, and it's, I go back to like, you know, the movie, The Breakfast Club, where everybody yes. had like an identity in that movie. And I yes. think that's very true there for a lot of kids. They look for finding their identity when they get into high school. And for so many of them, they find it in a sport of some kind. Totally. They find a connection, they find acceptance, and just so many transferable life skills there too. Okay, so where can people find out more? So check out the Jumpstart website, and it's all very clearly laid out there. And uh, you can donate as little or as much as you'd like. All right, it's a great cause. Thank you for that, Raji. 
Thanks, Simi. That is our Raji Sohal. They're talking about Jumpstart. They are looking to, well, jumpstart kids' sports again. Uh, you know, in the pandemic here, getting kids back to playing different types of sports, getting them into their activities because it is so crucial for them growing up to learn those kind of resilient life skills from playing different sports and having those activities. So more information online at Jumpstart Canada. Still ahead for us on the show this morning. Did you know that the oldest independent bookstore is right here in Vancouver? It's been around since 1945. Yeah, it has. And it's a co-op. We are going to learn all about it as part of our Where We Live series coming up next.